Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You know, if you want to be a filmmaker, that's great. And it's a, but it's not a, it's not a job selection. It's a lifestyle choice. And one of the aspects of that lifestyle is making friends with despair. Because there's a lot of despair in filmmaking. Here are some things I know about writer, producer, director Alexander Payne. He directed his first feature in 1995, so he's been battling despair for quite a while. He's interested in simple human stories. That's to say, stories about us, about people. I'm not sure there's another director working today whose characters are as lived in, as closely observed as Alexander Payne's. Consider the protagonist of Election, Tracy Flick, played by Reese Witherspoon, or Paul Giamatti's character Miles in Sideways, Jack Nicholson's Warren Schmidt in About Schmidt, or Bruce Dern as Woody Grant in the glorious black-and-white family drama Nebraska. Payne's latest movie is The Holdovers, again starring Paul Giamatti. He's Paul Hunman, a classics teacher at a New England boarding school. He's strict, follows the rules, seemingly, no matter the circumstances. Hunman gets stuck supervising the few students who can't go home over the Christmas holidays. Divine Joy Randolph plays the head chef at the school. Newcomer Dominic Sessa is one of the unfortunate students whose parents didn't come get him for the break. Do you think I want to be babysitting you? Oh, no, no, I was praying to the God I don't even believe in that your mother would pick up the phone or your father would arrive in a helicopter or a submarine or a flying fucking saucer to take you dead. You don't tell a boy that's been left behind at Christmas that you're aching to cut him loose. The Holdovers has been nominated for five Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Actor for Paul Giamatti, and Best Supporting Actress for Divine Joy Randolph. Alexander Payne is one of my favorite people to talk movies with. He knows a great deal more about them than I do, so that's one reason. Moreover, I often can't predict what he's going to say, which is unnerving and also a bit thrilling. My guest today is Alexander Payne. I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz, and this is Talking Pictures, a podcast about movies, about memories, and all the stuff that happens in between. Turner Classic Movies makes this podcast with the streaming service Max, where you'll find some of the movies mentioned in this episode. 
I went to Alexander's Southern California home back in December to record this episode. It's a bright, inviting, open space with incredible canyon views. We sat at Payne's dining room table. The table's special. When Payne learned a tree had to be cut down on his property, he hired a carpenter to repurpose the wood and make a table out of it. We started with the holdovers, in particular, how the look and tone of the movie evokes the 1970s. I asked Alexander what inspired that choice. I just thought it would be fun. I thought at some point after the script was written and we were slouching toward production, I just thought, wouldn't it be interesting now just as, just as an exercise for me that I think would be fun to do? Uh, what if we make it look and sound like a movie made in 1970 as much as possible? And not the, I'm not the first person to try to do it. You know, Bogdanovich did it with Paper Moon, making a movie in the 70s that pretty much looks and sounds like a 30s movie. It's really the feel. Mm-hmm. of the 70s more. I mean, I'm sure I, I, I didn't, there was never a moment where I thought that doesn't look right for the 70s, but it didn't, it feels like what really makes it like the 70s is that it feels like it could have been a movie that showed up in theaters in 1971 or 73 or 74, something like that. Great. I'm been, I've been, as you can imagine, very gratified to hear that. Yeah. Because it's not just a matter of technically making it look like it, like adding film grain or mixing it in mono, but it's a sense of the story and the rhythms and, and characterization and a certain anti-authoritarian streak and yeah, things like that. That's right. It was that was that's right. The anti-authoritarian streak that feels like a certainly a vital part of that movie for all the characters, really. So Giamatti, then so sideways and and now. Holdovers. Obviously, this is somebody you're 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 eager to work with. When very much so. Yeah. What 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 makes him special? He can do anything, and he's delightful to watch. And I enjoy hanging out with him. And I need to direct him very little. I need to say almost nothing. He just does it. You said uh, that he's like a guy very comfortable with his own emotions. Like, is that, do I have that right? Like he's comfortable reaching a different emotion. Well, at least it, as, I don't know if he is with other directors, but with me, he's certainly been that way. I mean, that's a key to a good actor, isn't it? That easy access to emotions. Yeah, of course. I was going to say, actually what you said was he has easy access to his emotions, which is a yeah. way better way of saying. Um, well, the best actors have that. Marlon Brando, easy access to emotion. Say, Mr. Brando, please cry. He could just do it. Yeah. So um, how did you and Giamatti uh, come together? We met in an audition in New York City when I was casting Sideways. But he came in on, on an audition and just so nailed the reading. And then only after he read it, I learned that he had gotten the sides only about 15 minutes before coming in. So when you're writing the screenplay, you don't have him in mind then. But no. Did you, but did you have that? look did you have that sort of idea i mean not really i can't remember whom i had in mind i mean often when writing a script i'll have an actor in mind but not necessarily one who's contemporary right citizen ruth i mentally wrote for um julietta messina oh really about schmidt i mentally wrote for some combo pack of william holden and john randolph like john randolph from seconds yeah (laughs) And uh, sideways, I don't think I had anyone in mind. 
Um, so, and I'm pretty, in general, pretty open to casting. I don't, you know, before meeting Ben Bankowitz, I could never predict Ben Mankiewicz and there's only one. And I think that's how casting is. But does that mean like, I mean, if Tom Hanks had come in, if George Clooney had come in, I mean, it, could you? Could I met you, Clooney on it for him to play the other part. The other, the, 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 the Thomas Hayden the Church Thomas part. Hayden Church part. But you didn't cast him. He wouldn't have been right. Yeah. I would not believe that the world's handsomest and most successful movie star is playing a washed up TV actor. Like right. that would have been the joke or a joke. And I'm not interested in that joke. Right. So you don't have an idea then about like when you're, when you're casting sideways, you, I mean, you have an idea, but you don't really, you're open to uh, could any number of actors could have captured your imagination. Absolutely. I rely heavily on auditions. Also, I don't watch a lot of contemporary movies. I watch mostly old movies. So when it comes time to making a movie, I really rely on casting for someone to show me scenes of this or that actor or, or meet them. I mean, even when I, even Leeds, like even Nebraska 10 years ago, I pretty much knew I wanted Bruce in the part and he really wanted to do it, but I still asked him to come in and read, to just do me the favor. It just helps me see the movie. We can even treat it like a first audition or first rehearsal rather. The, it's just, I just need to see auditions. Does anybody bristle at that? Well, if they do and don't come in, then I just don't cast them. And if they bristle too much, you're still probably going to. Well, and then you have actors like Judy Greer. So I, was, I, had I was about Ju to ask you about her. Yeah, Judy yeah. Greer and... I don't know if she thinks this anymore, but uh, she used to tell me, I don't take offers. I'm audition only. <laughs> because it's only when I'm in the presence of the director and say the lines of the script, can I feel that I'm right for the part? Right. She, it's almost like she's, I mean, she's taking this, she knows she's putting herself out there, but it's almost like she's auditioning you. Also, yeah. Right? Auditioning herself. Just, is this going to, is right. this going to be a good experience? Right. Yeah. She doesn't want to do it if it's not going to be yeah. a good experience, or she might regret it. Yeah, well, I, I, it makes me just like. Judy but that Gray was Paul more. Giamatti, and the thing is, too, is I had had I had seen I don't know countless auditions by that time with the same sides, and no one I felt had nailed it. And then when that happens, at least in my experience, um, one begins to doubt the script. Like, well, maybe the script sucks. If none of these actors are doing it well. Maybe it's not their fault. I mean, these are wonderful actors. And then an actor walks in who nails it, and you go, oh, I see. So you, so you see some big-time actors then who, who read for you, but they don't, you, you don't, they're not right. Yeah, I've had very big stars audition, and then I have to say no, and I write them a letter of thanks and respect. I mean, it's, I, want, I want the entire experience for them to be one of immense respect because I'm so grateful for that. Um, <laughs> the, uh, you said that uh, at one point that like it's, that the, the, the thing that studios, money people meddle in most is like the most important. Single thing. most component, component part of, of narrative filmmaking is the casting, the casting of your protagonist. And that's the thing that they most often, at least traditionally make you perhaps compromise on to get the financing for the movie. But you're willing. And then nobody wins. Nobody wins. And in general, I'll throw this hypothetical out. You would rather make a $15 million movie with the actors you want than a $75 million movie with the actors foisted upon you because they're bigger stars. Well, that comparison's a little broad. Let's say a $15 million movie and even a $20 million movie. The, the extra 
room, you know, the extra collar room. I always say that, uh, you know, they, a rule of thumb for wine, <laughs> for wine buying is that like when you go to Trader Joe's or something from $5 to $20, every additional dollar matters. After 20, then you kind of have to know what you're doing. Right. It's the same thing in filmmaking. Between 2 million and 20 million, each million matters. After 20, you know, you can kind of sl- slosh around a little bit. So then you, before Sideways, we got About Schmidt, right? Yes. I got that, I got that. So, and you only made one movie that anybody had seen, right, prior to, prior to About Schmidt. Citizen Ruth, some people saw it, not many. Election really put Election, put yeah. Jim Taylor and me on the map, and then we did about Schmidt and then Sideways. So was it trouble getting to Nicholson? Did you Nancy Myers was because she when she reached out to Nicholson for something's got to give, he was making about Schmidt. I heard it, and yeah. uh, another connection is that she talked about the first time she met Jack Nicholson. She was out on a date with Harry Giddis. Well, Harry Giddis. Produced About Schmidt, and it's he who approached me about a year before with a book called About Schmidt by Lewis Begley. And I read it and agreed to do it. And of course, Jim Taylor and I wound up writing something entirely different, but just using a couple ideas from the novel, good as it is. But anyway, the whole, Harry, Harry had set up the situation with his as a vehicle for his friend Jack Nicholson. And Nicholson had read the book and said, okay, Harry, uh, if you get a decent script, let me know. I'll read it. So finally came time that we, Jim and I finished the script, gave it to Harry, and he had it sent to uh, Jack Nicholson on a Friday. And by Tuesday, I was at Jack's house up on Mulholland Drive, and he was agreeing to do it. Um, what's he like on on set? I mean, I, I kind of know the answer to this already, but I think, you know, something about him that... I mean, he is, it strikes me that he may have some of the accoutrements of a big star, but when you're working with him, like he is part of a company and he is, he wants to. He's part of a company and also he never forgot his roots in low budget filmmaking. And that's very much what uh, formed him. The, with the Roger Corman yeah, school. Yeah, with, with Cor- Corman and then BBS. And uh, he would make as much reference to something he had done on a Cor- he had done on a Corman movie as something he had done with Roman Polanski or John Huston. That's that's all. But uh, here's an example again. I've told this before, and you've done your research. Forgive me for repeating myself. But the first week of shooting, you know, I, I had Jack Nicholson. I had an okay budget, but I still had a lot of pressure to make all my days, which means. Uh, I have to kind of figure out the coverage in advance more than I might normally want to and then dictate it. So Jack came in and I said, okay, in this scene, uh, Mr. Nicholson, I'd like you to come to the door and then come to the table. I'll stop. I'll do a close up. And uh, anyway, I kind of told him what the, how the scene was going to go. And then I checked in with him and I said, well, does that sound okay? And he said, listen, kid, whatever you come up with, I can find a way to justify it to myself. So what do you need? The other thing I did before working with him was, I sorry to name drop here, but I called it Mike Nichols, with whom I was fortunate to be friends after he saw election, actually with Soderbergh. And he called me up and we began a friendship. So I called him up and I said, you know, you've directed Jack Nicholson three or four times. What advice might you have for me? He said, oh, that's simple, my boy. Just tell him the truth, because he's going to smell it on you anyway. 
So like no director tricks, don't try to be smarter than you are. Just tell them what you think and feel. And that was excellent advice, not only for working with Nicholson, but for working with all actors, just tell them the truth. So there are actors who are, you know, who want to be directed, but they don't want to have a director give them a line read. Nicholson said, if you, if I'm not saying the line right, give me a line reading. He said, yeah. especially if someone has written the script and hears it in his or her brain a certain way, I got to know it because it's really, I may not do it exactly that way, but I need to have a sense of the rhythm. It's really about rhythm. I imagine that- You know, the- he, sorry, just one more thing. He freed me up to be what they tell you in films, like in directing classes is a bad director. Don't give a result. Don't give a line reading. Try to find some brilliant active active verb. Um, in one scene, he uh, it was too slow, and I said, uh, "Hey, Mr. Nicholson, you know there's a bit of urgency because someone you mean faster? <laughs> yes, faster. It's a bit of urgency. You yeah. mean faster? Yeah. yeah. Just tell him the truth. He's going to see through it anyway." We'll take a quick break. When we come back, Alexander Payne surprises me again. I would love to sell out. It would be so fantastic. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back. I'm talking to Alexander Payne, director of one of this year's Oscar contenders, The Holdovers. Payne has become a mainstay at the Academy Awards. He's won two Oscars for his screenplays for Sideways from 2004 and The Descendants, released in 2011. His films regularly earn nominations in multiple categories. He's a three-time nominee for Best Director. Payne's first feature film was Citizen Ruth, starring Laura Dern. It came out in 1996, six years after Payne finished film school at UCLA. I'm lucky to report that I came out of film school with a very good scenario. I had made a thesis film that 
attracted some attention. And uh, like a, it's not a short film. I mean, it's like, I mean, it's not a full length feature, but it's like almost an hour, 45 right. minutes. Right, 50 minutes, yeah. 50 minutes. What was that called? The Passion of Martin. Very, very loose adaptation of a famous uh, Argentine novella. And that got you? Within a month, I had a Hollywood agent and a writing, directing deal at a studio. And an office. Correct, and an office on the lot. It's pretty cool. It's still fun for me to be on a lot. It yeah. still feels a little bit, you know, electric. Um, uh, and then... And then you, I wrote, I was hired then to write what <clears throat> 11 years later became about Schmidt. Right. So that was the first thing I wrote was a thing about a guy in Omaha retires and realized to some degree how he's wasted his life and tries to do something about it. It was called The Coward. It's a good title. I'd see a movie called The Coward, by yeah. the way. Maybe, maybe you can work that in somewhere in the future. What, what uh, would you, but you can't, I mean, you, you don't, you, you got a family restaurant that burned down. Your dad became a government worker. Like there's not, the pain family fortune is not sustaining you, I suspect, over these six years. I maintained uh, my life, uh, lifestyle, of, the lifestyle of a graduate student until I was about 39. <laughs> I lived, um, yeah, I was in Silver Lake, paying 700 a month. And then I went up to Chico, California for a year and I came back and moved to Koreatown, paying also 700, 750 a month and stayed living that way until I was uh, 39. So Citizen Ruth, as you said, not a lot of people saw it, but people in the industry knew and it did open doors. It's this really good, smart film. You had a lot of different actors, a lot of different kinds of actors. They feel like you'd made it like that feel you I mean it has to have meant something it's your first it's your first feature film with a you know real studio real release it's one thing to get a first feature as a young director it's another thing to then get your second feature and really making i think in my mind making it was the idea that i could sustain a career doing it so it maybe took two three movies to feel like okay, I've begun to make it in my chosen profession and we'll have some degree, we'll enjoy some degree, no matter how hard it is, some degree of consistency. Um, was there then more anxiety after Citizen Ruth or after election? Like after the success of election, is there a thought like, oh man, what if I can't sustain this? Because then you get in good feedback. You know election's good. No, I was pretty confident that way. I thought I, thought I could always come up with some version of the goods, if given the opportunity. But certainly election, uh, as I said before, really put Jim Taylor and me as writers and me as a director on the map. That was a, a bit of a watershed film for us. And it's still the film I get the most compliments on. Yeah, I mean, that in Sideways, but kind of from film nerds, more, more about election. Um, the scene, just the way you get awkward moments is just, I don't know. It's so authentic. It is so human. But I mean, thinking you're about to have this exciting tryst and then come back to the tristie and your wife and then the bee, it's just perfect. It was a lot of fun to make. It was a long process to make. That was a long one. Editing it took a long time. We had two Christmas parties in the editing room. Why did it take so long to edit? Uh, because the initial ending didn't work. And so we had to sort of reconsider an ending and then jim what, and i what was do you remember oh, do you yeah remember? it was the same <laughs> ending which which tom parada had had in the novel which is uh they after jim McAllister, matthew broderick's character is fired about a year elapses and then he's uh, 
think he's selling cars and she comes in to buy a car and they go for a test drive and she's off to Georgetown to go to college and they stop by her house and she runs into the house and brings the yearbook out and says, will you sign my yearbook? So sort of perfectly lovely, melancholy, wistful ending. Uh, but the movie had come out a lot funnier and anarchic and subversive than the book had been. And so that melancholy ending felt uh, tonally inconsistent. Yeah, so we put ourselves to Jim and I thought, well, okay, if this were not an adaptation, what ending might we have come up with? So we wrote that and then we had to wait for Matthew Broderick to finish shooting Inspector Gadget. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then finally we shot it and anyway all's well that ends well yeah right yeah right it was uh you you found total consistency yeah yeah with the ending you had i mean when i think about my new life and all the exciting things i'm doing and then i think about what her life must be like probably still getting up at five in the morning to pursue her pathetic little dreams it just makes me sad I mean, where is she really trying to get to anyway? And what is she doing in that limo? Who the fuck does she think she is? Uh, he seems like a delightful actor, too. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Um, and Reese, Reese Witherspoon, did whatever, did she, what, did she, did she stay in the business? <laughs> uh, um, the, uh, uh, so, the, and so is it that that's real then? The, the the sequel talk, like there's that that's a in the that's a possibility. It's a possibility. Yeah, Jim and I have to put our heads together to think seriously about what we would do with it. What one must be very careful with sequels. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't even feel like it's a sequel. It's, no, it, it would be it, just it, catching it, up it, and probably a, in a significantly different way, different tone. You can't, you know, it's another chapter. You can't like, step into the same yeah. river twice as the fellow says. Um, so we, Tom Parada's written a fine novel, although Jim and I would have to do uh, some reimagining to, as we had to do with the first one, to turn it into a film that, that feels good to us. So we'll be, we're thinking about it. It's nice to create a character where people who saw the movie instinctively wonder what that character is doing 25 years later. I have no problem thinking, what is Tracy Flick up to? Yeah. I know I don't, whatever it is, I'm not going to like it, but I'm interested. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm, interested, All right. I'm interested in what she's up to. Election didn't do much business at the box office when released in 1999. Now it's a modern classic. Even President Obama loves it. He told Alexander Payne it's his favorite political film. Payne co-wrote the script with his longtime writing partner, Jim Taylor, and they picked up an Oscar nomination for their screenplay. Payne went on to make About Schmidt, Sideways, and then his most commercially successful movie, The Descendants, starring George Clooney. The story follows Clooney as he grapples with selling his family's land in Hawaii. The land is worth millions. But he places everything on hold after his wife has a devastating boating accident. While she's in a coma, he discovers she was having an affair and wanted a divorce. In this scene, Clooney visits his wife in the hospital after finding out about the affair. He has a one-sided argument with his comatose wife. You're going to ask me for a divorce so you could be with some fucking fuckhead Brian Spear? Are you kidding me? 
Isn't the idea of marriage to make your partner's way in life a little easier? For me, it was always harder with you, and you're still making it harder. Lying there on a ventilator and fucking up my life. You are relentless. Um, so uh, the descendants then, so you you you, you meet with Clooney? Over, I did. Oh, I did. And yeah. didn't ask. That, there, there, when I talked about auditioning a few minutes ago, obviously I don't ask George Clooney to audition. I don't ask Jack Nicholson to audition. That's, right. I know what I'm getting. Yeah. Um, but uh, you thought, hey, not quite right. He's too... Too charming, too good looking for 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 the that character for the Tom. Yeah, Hayden but he shirt. was right for. There were two actors who could have been right for the Descendants: uh, Clooney and Tom Hanks. Yeah, each of them could have done a fine version of that. Yeah, um, but you thought he's right for this. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, and so he's your. And first. if you've got that's a good thing. I mean, is if if the, you've got a part that a star is right for, and you can get the star, it's great. And the, those, the money flows. And everybody breathes easier, and and at least in the case of the Descendants, the movie makes more money. I mean, that's that's still my highest grocer to date, in no small part because of his presence. Yeah, and so this is a this is not a moment where the, you're they're trying to foist someone else on you. Like here, we're we're lined up. The money people and the creative people are are. Yeah. Yes, and it was with Fox Searchlight, with whom I had had a very harmonious harmonious experience on Sideways. So all good. So, All pistons firing. So Clooney quickly said yes? He did. Yeah. Yeah. So two things. I remember speaking with Jim Giannopoulos, who was running Fox at the time, and we were going back and forth between... He's one of the executives that people seem to like. Quite He's a good good yeah. man. Yeah. Very good man. And uh, excellent. And... Um, He's friends with Tom Hanks, and Tom Hanks probably ha has a higher, you know, box office guarantee rating on whatever those things are. He said, well, what about Tom Hanks? And I just said, you know, he's awesome, but I've seen Tom Hanks cry. I've never seen George Clooney cry. I want to see him cry. <laughs> uh, talk about things that would have made me cry. There's no way that I could have won an Academy Award and known my parents were watching without crying. Were you moved? in that way was it just exciting did you oh winning an oscar yeah winning an oscar and like knowing you're you know well my mom was there the second time my mom was there the second time yeah she made sure that happened yeah <laughs> you bullied her way in yeah uh no in the moment it's very at least in my experience it's just sort of you know exciting and you kind of want to get through it be elegant and get through it and then emotions may become later we've reached an era in the oscars where you, you have some sense whether you're sometimes it's too close and it could be any number of people. Did you feel like, oh, there's a good chance I'm going to win because on sideways, on sideways, we'd had a pretty good, right? You, you'd pretty been, good. You'd you been know. winning. Yeah, we had WGA and Golden Globes, and there were a number of harbingers. So you can never be for you know you can never be 100 percent sure, but uh, we wouldn't have been entirely surprised to win. The that's when it's that's when I ache for people who have won all those and then don't win the Oscar. Right? Well, then they had all the other wins. I know, but then it feels, you know, it's the way we are about winning and losing is that you will lose. Listen, yeah. not eating humble pie here, but just being able to make movies is the right. big win. Um, so it was the, then, so the second one was for The Descendants? Yes. And that was more surprising than th that win or? Uh, I think we had also, I had different co-writers on that one. I think we had won, we, I know we had won Writers Guild and, forget yeah it, it had won the golden globe for best drama so it was 
Yeah, again, not, it's never 100%, but we thought we might. Do you ever look at the list of people who won the Academy Award for Best Screenplay and think, wow, this is great. This is, what a, what a club I'm in. Let alone the people who've won it twice. Best Screenplay is the only Oscar uh, Citizen Kane one. I'm aware. Yeah. We had it and we sold it. <laughs> who bought it? There was a, was a terrible, depressing story. My dad is one, was wonderfully, um, uh, he wasn't nostalgic about things. So he like, and he owned it, not his brother Don, who owned like a sled, one of the Rosebud sleds that I think Ben Hecht had given him at the party. It wasn't used in the film, but it was essentially. And my Uncle Don, he gambled and he didn't always have money. Um, he was a good screenwriter, but he... Uh, and he asked my dad if he'd be willing to sell the, so dad was complaining, he'd, he'd, it cost a lot to insure. So my dad put it in a safe deposit box because it was a pain in the ass. And, you know, and, and he was like, well, if you got it in a safe deposit box, why don't you sell it? And then you can give me some of the money, uh-huh. you know, like 20% if you know. And my dad was like, all right, yeah, fine. I know we want it, it doesn't matter. And they had sold, they had owned together Herman Mankiewicz's, my grandfather's annotated script to Citizen Kane with some of his notes. And Spielberg bought it. Huh. for a lot of money and then instantly you know had it on display at amblin and then eventually gave it to the academy and they were like well Spiel- this will be great spielberg will buy the oscar <laughs> but somebody else bought it for less money than the script and nobody knows where it is yeah but how much does an oscar go for like how much would i get on ebay for an oscar i wonder well i don't think first of all you're not allowed to but, the, yeah, citizen, but right right so the, the year was citizen maybe King there's was a grand dark, maybe there's a dark web <laughs> the dark web i like the, the intellectual dark web you could sell it there um it's a good list to be part of right let alone people who want I it remember twice. when i won the second one somebody said you well, you know who the last person who went back to back best adapted screenplays where i go no is robert bolt you're sure. a good company I go, yeah. oh well thanks for telling me that I remember when uh, Jim and I were first no- uh, nominated for the screenplay for election, my dad called up and said, now don't let this go to your head. And my line was, no, dad, but I want it to go to other people's heads. <laughs> That's a great So <laughs> these things are ideally commodities. I mean, it's, there's ego stroke and, you know, rec- and that's all lovely. But practically, you know, we're, we're border collies. We don't really want good dog. We want that next herd of sheep to round up. And uh, hopefully the, 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 you know, awards, attention, whatever, flattering as it might be, it's a commodity to help you ensure future employment. And, and so the, the awards are commodities. And then, especially if you don't, if you don't own a piece of the movies, you're not a producer in the movie, you're not getting a, you know, you're not making a billion dollars off of it. Correct. Then, then the box office is a commodity too, right? That's a like. Yeah. I got a residuals check from Nebraska the other day. I think it was. Twenty-eight dollars, something like that. It was it was nominated for six Academy Awards. Right. My residuals like twenty-eight dollars, like you know, four times a year. Well, the, so, you know, it's better than nothing. So, counting my blessings, there had to be somebody in your life who thought, "Okay, I got it. You want to make this black and white movie called Nebraska? Um, can we? Let's do something first. We've just done the Descendants. No, I've never had that kind of. No, that was. There were different studios. I had done The Descendants. That was, you know, everyone is its own thing. But I've never had anyone propose that one for me, one for you sort of thing. I've never, the, the directors, even Scorsese talk about. But even the, but forget the one for me, one for you, just to be like, this is the time to 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 get a movie where somebody's going to pay me, eight, I'm making a number up, $8 million just to direct it, whatever, because you're. I would love 
to have an offer like that. I've never had an offer like that. I would love to sell out. It would be so fantastic and have that money and everything. But it's just, it's a matter of the screenplay. What's the screenplay? And it would be easier to sell out if if uh, making a movie were a six-month experience. But it's two or three years. And how really do you want to spend your life? And what do you want to say? And Why do you... Know. Why did you... Uh, you have to be picky. Why was it so important to make Nebraska in black and white? Because it would be so pretty. It just felt right. And I don't think you're a real director until you've made something in black and white. At least I think so. you got to work in black and white. It's such a beautiful form, and especially black and white cinemascope. It's like putting truffle oil or maple syrup over something. It's just cheating. It just looks so beautiful, you know. That's how Orson Welles felt, right? So how Orson Welles told Peter Bogdanovich to make Paper Moon in black and white. Otherwise, you know. There are no good performances in color. What did he say? <laughs> yeah, he something like that. There's no good, no good performances in color. <laughs> yeah. Uh, was there pushback? Must have been. Yes. Yeah. Uh, through an unfortunate series of events, Paramount owned the script. Didn't even know they had it. Because regimes had changed, and then the producers had to call them and say, you know, you guys own this script you're sitting on, and Alexander Payne wants to do it. And they said, well, you know, you can have like 16 or $17 million to make it in color. And I'm like, I don't want it. I, it's got to be in black and white. And then there was no deal. And I said, all right, well, I'll just, and I was thinking, I'll just wait for your uh, successor in your job. I didn't say that. But I thought, you know, I'll just play the long game. And then I got a call. No, all right, we'll do it in black and white. It just has to be for less money. I said, what changed your mind to the guy who was running the studio? He goes, that you walked away from it. I said, well, you know, I didn't do that after reading some negotiation book that you're supposed to walk away in order. I go, I actually was walking away. <laughs> it wasn't a technique. He goes, I know. That's why I want to do it. <laughs> That's why it worked. That's why it works. Yeah. <laughs> that's why it works. That's wow. nice. Yeah. It's uh well then I mean, some of that is then that's leverage. I mean, that's some of that. Who knows how much of him thinking about you differently because of the success of the descendants plays into his head, whether he acknowledges or not. Who knows? Well, uh, also it's a big it's chump change. Right. They don't 13, 14 million bucks for these people. Right. Even if they lose it, they will eat no less uh, you know, hamachi collar. So then what did you see in a guy like Will Forte? Not in a guy like Will Forte. What did you see in Will Forte? <laughs> Casting director John Jackson and I met him and read him and liked him. I didn't know who should play that part. We wanted to cast that the son only after we had the parents. So we had Bruce Stern and June Squibb. And somehow we just believed uh, Will Forte and Bob Odenkirk as their, as their sons just kind of physically, not that that has to be the deal breaker, but we thought that. And then I liked, I don't know, I'd never seen Will Forte do anything like that. And I liked that his face in repose defaults to damage. <laughs> what does that mean? It just like, if he's not smiling or doing one of his funny antics, his face just looks uh, troubled and damaged, like he had an unhappy childhood somehow. <laughs> that's great. It's such a that's uh, such a good observation. Um, I like learning that these actors, the successful Saturday Night Live actors, are capable of so much more. It always feels like this wonderful surprise to see a guy who'd been funny, and you think, you know, 
you know, you think of him in skits and bits, and then you're like, oh my God, no, wait, this is a real actor. It happens a lot, but it definitely happened with Will. Agreed. And I always trust comic actors more with dramatic parts than dramatic actors. Because it's hard to be funny. Yeah, I mean, if you can do comedy, you can do drama, but the opposite is not necessarily true. If you can do comedy, you can do drama. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, so then downsizing, 2017. I've heard you now talk a lot about this. You're very sort of frank about the, I don't know. I mean, some people love this movie. I'm know? so happy for them yeah. that they exist. Do you love it? I, I, mean, don't, I don't How do you even think about it? You're, how do you think about it? I haven't been thinking yeah. about it very much. I saw it projected again. I hadn't seen it since it came out. And then about six months ago, I saw it projected at a festival in Greece. That was... There, it has really good passages in it, and there are very good things about it. And I was thinking, what? now why did this work? And I have some ideas about it. But uh, I'm happy I made it, and it's got some really good stuff in it. And my line lately has been why in 600 years, when people really are small, <laughs> I will be worshipped as a god. <laughs> he saw the future. Right. It will be hailed as a masterpiece. So did it put pressure did downsizing put any extra pressure on you in making the holdovers or did what I'm getting? No. You just, you're confident. Next, everyone's yeah. different. There's yeah. such different movies. And well, why was it six years between, is it six years? Yeah, I guess so. Between downside. Well, I've always been a little slow between movies. So there's no kind of. Yeah, you, there were seven between sideways and the descendants. Right. Yeah, whatever. Uh, yeah, there is a, a little period of licking one's wounds and scratching one's head, but then you just, you know, after a success or a failure, you just say, all right, next, what's next? But did you have a, so there was no sense of like, well, what if what if two in a row, our scene is not working again? It's well, perception. that would be bad. Right, but you that doesn't really enter your- that, How can it? It's a luxury to think that way. You just have to think about what's going to make this movie work, not- how are people going to perceive it? It's it's what's going to make it work because you're just, you and your collaborators are putting your heads together on it. Like, I mean, I can only speak for myself. I could do both. I could concentrate on it. And then at night when I close my eyes, I could think, oh man, what if again, I have one that's perceived as not working? Well, that crosses one's mind, yes, but with no greater frequency, at least in my experience now, that the last one had tanked six years ago. I wasn't thinking... And, but I, you know, you're always thinking, God, is this going to work? You know, and when you're in the process, in the, in the, yeah, when you're in the process of making a film, w at least my uh, thinking about it seesaws between, wow, I'm Orson Welles and wow, I'm a big fraud and this is terrible. This is great and this is terrible. And you kind of can, you believe both with equal conviction and you kind of lose your, your rudder a little bit, lose your bearings, your boring, whatever you want to say. And uh, so you have that though. You have moments of, of, of this is all, uh, I've, I've been a, this yeah, is, yeah. less with age, I think, but uh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Oh, it's, you go through all the emotions while making a movie. But the, what I, what I tell the young people, like in film school and so forth is, you know, if you want to be a filmmaker, that's great. And it's a, but it's not a, it's not a job selection, it's a lifestyle choice. And one of the aspects of that lifestyle is making friends with despair, because there's a lot of despair in filmmaking. What are the desperate moments? Not being able to finish a script, not being able to get financing or casting. You're in the middle of making it and all hell 
breaks loose. You're, you're, or have you, you had all hell break loose in the middle of a no, production? Uh, no, not really. But you know it can happen. Yeah, yeah but mm-hmm. filmmakers are farmers. You're just always worried about the rain and the sun. And is this going to work? And are we going to get the crops and all that kind of stuff? Isn't there another advantage of, of working in the... But, but I've had the despair of the other things of taking forever on a script, taking forever on a cut. Maybe it's not very good. Uh, uh, long, yawning gaps between films. You have to make friends with despair because all the time a filmmaker just would, rather than talking to you, a filmmaker would rather be making a movie, just 100%. You'd rather be making a movie right now? Well, I, which is not to say <laughs> yeah. I'm not enjoying this fine conversation. Yeah, I got you. I'm going to let you off the hook. But yeah, I'd rather be on set. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> um, oh, let me ask you this, just last thing, because this didn't, I didn't even know this about you at all. So this is a. Okay. Um, so the. That you did the last uncredited rewrite on Meet the Parents? Yes, sir. Uh, have you seen it? Oh, yeah. It's very funny. Yeah, Jim and I are proud of that work. Yeah, so you see it, you see things that you wrote in there that are funny. Oh, yeah, we did. We gave him a third act and a lot of stuff along the way. The poem that uh, Robert De Niro reads to his dead mother's ashes is Mind of the Word. Oh, that's so good. Your name was Angela, the angel from heaven but you were also an angel of God. And he needed you too. Selfishly, I tried to keep you here while the cancer ate away your organs like an unstoppable rebel force. But I couldn't save you, and I shall see your face nevermore until we meet in heaven. And then Jurassic Park 3. Like, I don't know, it's just there, if you were to... It almost seems like name the one movie in Hollywood that there's no chance Alexander Payne worked on. Jurassic Park 3 feels like it might be the leading answer. Jim and I got that job because we had done a good job on uh, Meet the Parents, and they were both universal pictures. And uh, they it was one of those last-minute, panicked production rewrites. They'd already built the sets. They were five weeks away from shooting. And they realized they needed help, not with the dinosaurs, but with the people. So we got the call. Maybe others had got the call before us and they passed, but we got the call. And uh, it was a delight to do a pro job. You know, we spent, we rewrote that whole script in a month. Do you like that kind of work? Or did you like that kind yeah, of work? Yeah, I, I actually, I love that work. I love doing uh, script doctoring. Wow. Because, well, one, of course, the the money's nice, but, but beyond that... Uh, it's so good to just uh, go to the gym and practice craft and not, because when it's, it's your own thing, it's like you get all pretentious with yourself and agonize. And, and you're in your head. Yeah. You're in your head a lot. But when there's a, the meter's running and you've got to uh, do the pro job in a short period of time, it feels really good. It's really satisfying. Uh, uh, the last one I did was, and I did two weeks on, uh, Pokemon something Detective Pikachu. Oh, never mind. I was wrong about Jurassic Park three. That's the answer that yeah, but not would, not. Yeah. I mean, but a lot of a lot of writers I worked gotcha. on that. I think, but uh, and it was in post when they were trying to do some reshoots. But yeah, I did a couple weeks. It was about four or five years ago on Pokemon Detective Pikachu. So somebody needs it now. They you, you call you, me up. Call you'll take the call. You, yeah. Absolutely. I'm available. <laughs> you want to write some TCM I'm chairman of the board. I've got nothing but time. 
When we come back, Alexander Payne answers the Super 8 and tells me about taking a date to see a very non-date movie. We're back. Time for the Super 8, where we ask our guests a series of set questions about movies they've watched, movies they've loved, and movies they'll never forget. All right, so uh, so here are our, our Super 8. What's your most memorable movie-watching experience? I think I have three. Mm-hmm. It's funny, I heard your interview with Nancy Myers, and she mentions that she hadn't seen Modern Times. So Modern Times I saw when I was five or six years old, and I remember it so vividly because I had never laughed that hard in the automatic feeding machine scene. I just couldn't believe anything could be that funny. So that one, uh, when I was in college and did a year abroad in Spain, I saw Buñuel's Viridiana. Yeah. And that made a big impact on me, thinking I, I couldn't believe a film could be that ferocious. Yeah, that is a, uh, the end of that movie is... Something else. Quite something, yeah. And then uh, when I was a junior in college and saw at the Castro Theater, the newly restored Seven Samurai. Yeah. And that's really the movie that cemented my resolve to go to try to go to film school, was seeing Seven Samurai. Why? Well, I thought, I'll never climb the mountain that high, but I want to be on that mountain. I didn't know a movie could be that good. Like, I really felt I were back there, you know, 600 years ago. No, not 600 years. Yeah, almost 600 years. Something like that, yeah. Movie you loved in high school? Uh, A lot. Um, But I probably, for my friends and me, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest made a big impact when we were 15 or 16 or so. And uh, we loved uh, Annie Hall and uh, Manhattan. And when other classmates were discussing which of the Star Wars movies they liked best, we would argue over Manhattan versus Annie Hall. Where do you come out on Manhattan versus Annie Hall? I like them both. Yeah. Um, the uh, movie you'd uh, movie you'd show a date. That I would show a date? Yeah, a date or somebody you're interested in. Is there a movie that you just imagine? I'm a, I'm a little old for that, but... Uh, well, even a movie back then that you would show a date, a movie you just showed a date. Well, first, can... I have to... You're reminding me of an experience I had when I was 15 or 16, and there was some girl, and I took her out on a date, and I wanted to go see a movie, but I couldn't drive, and so my brother Nick took us, and I barely knew the girl, and we went to see Taxi Driver. <laughs> You know, and there's a scene in there where he takes her out on a date to a porn theater. And I forget at what moment. I mean, I, I was, remember he takes he takes Civil Shepherd. He takes Civil Shepherd yeah. on a date. They yeah. go to a, like yeah. a porn theater on 42nd Street. And uh, and I forget at what moment I was seated. I had my brother Nick to my left and this girl to my right. And at some moment, my brother George's uh, brother Nick was trying to do me a favor and took my arm and was trying to push it, like oh, put it God. around the girl. During Taxi Driver. Anyway, nothing happened after that date. Where are you going? I have to leave now. Why? I don't know why I came in here. I don't like these movies. Well, I mean, I, 
you know, I didn't know that you'd, you'd feel that way about this movie. I don't know much about movies, but if I... Do you know what kind of movies you go to? Well, yeah, I mean, I come and they are... This is not so bad. Take me to a place like this is about as exciting to me as saying, let's fuck. It's like, what, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed we haven't seen some version of that in an Alexander Payne movie. That's a nice, human, awkward moment. You know what a good movie to show a date would be? It's so beautiful and romantic. Well, I mean, it's, it depends on who the... I mean, I know this is just a hypothetical. But the one that leaps to mind is um, A Special Day. Una yeah. giornata particolare. That's such a beautiful movie. That is a beautiful movie. You know, movie. I think yeah. on a date you'd want to show something beautiful. Yeah. You know, inspiring and beautiful. Or funny. Uh, movie that makes you cry without fail. There are many. City Lights. I think the ending in City Lights is not just perhaps the greatest ending of any movie, but I think it's a uniquely miraculous achievement in all of the arts. And then that dialogue. You can see now. Yes, I can see. It's just very beautiful. Yeah. And it's rare... Uh, you know, Chaplin did most of his stuff in full frame and used close-ups only sparingly you know, to get into the character, not just looking at the character. But his use of close-ups in that, or at least medium close-ups, is so beautiful. Uh, Bicycle Thieves, the ending of Bicycle Thieves, when Bruno takes his father's hand yeah, that's after it. watching him getting beat up by a mob of guys for trying to steal something. That's an instant cry. Instant. I forget about that all the time. That's one I got to add to my answer. Uh, three Kurosawa movies, Seven Samurai, Ikiru, and, uh, oh, four. Red Beard, when they yell for the boy's soul down the well. And uh, the very ending of Dersu Uzala. What is that? He comes to visit uh, Dersu's grave. And then just on the sound, his, you, it holds on him for a long, long, long time, just looking at the grave of his friend. And then you hear a whisper, Dersu. What's the, is it Akira with the, that's the, the guy who's dying, right? Yes. Yeah. And that's, so one question I have that I ask other film nerds is we all have movies which make us cry at the end. What are some movies that make us cry early on? So the scene where Frederick March comes home to Myrna Loy makes you cry in the first 15 minutes. The best years of our lives. There's a montage in Ikiru where he learns that he's dying, he goes home, his son, ungrateful son and shrewish daughter-in-law are upstairs, and he's been, he plays a montage. You see a montage of his memories of this son, and then the son says something very disappointing to him. It's very, very beautiful. Um, and I can't think of others where you cry kind of early on. I mean, I, to think about. I cry. It is something to think about. I cry pretty easily and i don't i, I don't mind it and right. i'm so grateful yeah. to the movies for that right, because yeah. i don't cry in real life i wish I, I wish i did i don't have that easy access to emotions but so i'm so grateful for movies to give me that release okay so uh filmmaker of the past you'd like to say hey let's make a movie together uh buster keaton laurel to, I, I would very much have enjoyed being a silent director in the 20s and so and even keaton who went on to direct his own work uh, man, to have done some of his early shorts with him, what an amazing life experience that would have been. And when you think of yourself in that world, if you were a director in 1925, are you making comedies? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Um, all right. You're a thief. 
big warehouse of uh, every movie prop ever? Is there something you steal? Or I have no idea on this one. Yeah. You don't think in terms of props? I mean, maybe there's an obvious thing that... Errol Morris's answer was like 17 minutes. 17 what? <laughs> minutes. <laughs> oh, of... Yeah, on this. It was. It was, yeah. Rosemary Woods? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, that's a good one. But that's not... I mean, that's different. Yeah, um, yeah I don't know. No, Rosemary Woods, that's your 17 minutes. That's good. That's a nice reference. Is that what? No, I said it was a 17-minute answer. Oh, I oh, see. Yeah, oh, yeah. I thought you meant finding I was those, like, those, Rosemary missing, Woods, the, but, those missing 17 minutes. Right, no, now I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. This joke is a bit of a deep cut, so I'm breaking in to explain. Alexander Payne is talking about the infamous 18-and-a-half-minute gap in the Nixon-Watergate tapes and how Nixon's secretary, Rosemary Woods, testified to universal skepticism how she recorded over some of the tape by mistake. Filmmaker Errol Morris made a documentary about former U.S. Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld called The Unknown Known. In that film, they talk about the aftermath of Watergate. Okay, back to our Super 8. Uh, uh, your dad's favorite movie. I don't really know. He... He would go to the movies with us, but wasn't like movie crazy like my mom and I were more. Uh, I remember toward the end of his life, he really liked, and it kind of surprised me, but then didn't surprise me. He liked uh, Cinema Paradiso. He liked that. He probably saw it four or five times. Well, that makes me cry. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Um, your uh, So did your mom have a favorite movie? I don't know. She liked... Big, sweeping, romantic, historical things. She loved Gone with the Wind. She loved uh, Dr. Zhivago, Casablanca, of course. Anything with Edward G. Robinson to this day. Mm -hmm. Anything. Anything with Robert Mitchum. She loved, always loved Robert Mitchum. Who doesn't? How do you not love Robert Mitchum? Um, yeah, I mean, I remember her raving about many films over the years. Back in the 70s, I remember her loving... The Garden of the Finzi Contini's. I remember her loving the two of us. Well, I like. I already like your mom just for Edward G. Robinson and and Robert Mitchum. Oh, I, <laughs> yeah. My dad was a Republican and kind of prudish, and my mother was ex exactly the opposite. And I remember a few years ago when Wolf of Wall Street came out, someone said to her, "Peggy, did you know that?" Or I said, "I said that's the that's you know that's the movie that apparently the American movie that has that holds the record for the most fucks." like 400 or 500 she she goes i didn't even notice <laughs> i like peggy um uh, alexander thanks man I don't thank you for a delightful discussion yeah i think we're good right? there's nothing funner than to sit around and nerd out about movies yeah you gave a lot of really interesting movies including some i have to see or uh, or uh, or re-see thank you alexander yeah thank you well you heard me say it a lot of movies to pick from here some I'm inspired to revisit, A Special Day with Sophia Loren and Marcello Mastroianni. That's the film Alexander would show a date today, very much the opposite of Taxi Driver. There's Akira Kurosawa's Kiru. I'm due for a rewatch on that one, too. Only saw it once for work. And maybe something with Robert Mitchum in honor of Peggy, Alexander's mother, who just turned 100. I'll go with old and new. Out of the Past from 1947, which never gets old, and The Friends of Eddie Coyle from 73, my favorite Mitchum film. A tough watch, but worth it. 
That's our show. Thanks for listening. You can find many of the movies we talked about on the streaming service Max. We made a list for you. It's in our show notes. James Kim produces and edits Talking Pictures. Dory Stegman books the show. Glenn Matullo mixes each episode. Thanks to Phil Richards, Yako Friedman, Julie Baton, Katie Daniels, and Emma Morris. Angela Carone is our executive producer. Special thanks to Michael Gluckstadt and Allison Cohen from the Max Podcast team. And as always, to Charlie Tavish from TCM. See you next time.